Welcome everyone uh, to Drisha's Full Programming. This is the last part in this course on what can we learn about God from the image of God in us by Rabbi Dr. Samuel Liebens. And with that, I'll turn it to you, Dr. Liebens. Hello. Um, I, I'm sad that this is our last session and um, I, I fear that we've only just um, skimming the eye, you know, skimming the tip of the iceberg uh, in, in, in our discussion of, of God, the image of God, and specifically our kind of overriding question whether God is a person or not, a person um, understood in some sense or other as being an emotional being. Um, a little summary so far is we, we have looked at two main thinkers, two medieval thinkers, the Rambam, uh, Moshe ben Maimon and Chastai Kreskes, and I've been thinking about three traits, and I want to argue, and, and I, I'm actually drawing this terminology from Rav Heschel, from Abraham Joshua Heschel, who we will come to later. I've been wanting to argue that there are three necessary conditions, three things you have to have if you can really be called a person. Uh, one of them I've called logos, and by logos, I mean something like um, the ability to have beliefs about the world. And I specifically mean non-moral beliefs, not beliefs about how things should be, just beliefs about how things are. That's going to be a person's logos. Then there's ethos, which is a person's beliefs about how things should be, right? Uh, uh, and, and kind of a set of ethical principles. Um, and most people have. Uh, some idea of how they would like things to be. And, and that's each and every one of us, that's our ethos. And then there's a pathos. A pathos is the ability to feel emotions. Now, very often, human beings, um, our pathos and our ethos come together. We tend to think that what's good is what feels good, although that's very often wrong. <laughs> very often, uh, what's good for us doesn't feel good. So if your pathos and your ethos are completely in tune, that may be because you have something of a vulgar ethos. You just think that what's good is what feels good. However, you might think that you know, perhaps very, very righteous people only enjoy things which they should enjoy. So perhaps very sophisticated people have very refined pathos and therefore their pathos and ethos can be in tune with one another. But these are the three uh, characteristics having beliefs about the world that are not prescriptive, that are not moral, that's your logos. Having beliefs about the moral universe, beliefs about how things should be, that's your ethos. And having feelings, that's your pathos. Now, the Rambam uh, was pretty clear that really God has none of these things because you can't really say anything about God. Anything you do say about God will only be more or less false. However, of the three character traits we've looked at, he's most happy saying that God um, has logos. God has beliefs about how the world really is. Um, and that's because he thinks that when the Torah says that man and woman are created in the image of God, it means that we, so to speak, share this ability to... Uh, use our intellect to discover purely intellectual truths. And that's, uh, for the Rambam, as close to godlike as human beings are able to be. Now, it's controversial whether the Rambam thinks God has an ethos, because before, you'll recall, it's in the second chapter of the Guide to the Perplexed, before Adam and Eve ate from the fruit, which gave them knowledge of good and bad, all they had was knowledge of truth and falsehood. They had logos. With no good or bad, that makes it sound like they had no ethos. Although I think it's not quite as, as simple as that. I think that um, the Rambam thinks that a purely intellectual being has some ethical principles, things like it's, it, uh, it is good to um, promote the intellect. It is bad to give in to the body or something like that. Some very bare-boned ethos. Um, so yes, God, in some sense or other, speaking with the vulgar, has a logos and has an ethos. But what we saw is that the Rambam's God, in, in no way is it okay to say that the Rambam's God 
experiences emotions. And when the Torah makes it sound like that's what's happening, doesn't really mean it. When it says God is merciful, it only really means God acts in ways that look merciful. When it says that God is angry, all it really means is God, God has a causal um, imprint on the world that looks like he's angry. Uh, but as I described it in quite provocative terms in our last class, it's as if the Rambam's God is dead behind the eyes, right? Uh, he, he, so to speak, acts as if there's emotion, but of course, there's no emotion. And it's for this reason that I want to say the Rambam might have his own definition of what it means to be a person, a rational animal. So obviously God isn't a person because God isn't an animal. Now, I don't think you need to be an animal to be a person. I think a ghost could be a person. Uh, I think a spirit could be a person. Um, I think, though, you definitely need logos, ethos, and pathos. So even by my definition of a person, uh, the Rambam's God is not a person. So then we moved on to Crescus. And Crescus doesn't just give God logos and ethos, and he doesn't even think that this is some figure of speech. God really has logos and really has ethos. In fact, your logos, the extent to which you're a rational being, is just a pale reflection of the real rationality, which is God's rationality. You think you, you, think you know what ethics is? Well, no, your ethics is just a pale reflection of the ethics of the perfect ethical being, God, who has a perfect logos and a perfect, perfect ethos. But Crescus's God also experiences an emotion, but just one emotion. And that emotion is constant and unchanging bliss. And the reason he has constant and unchanging bliss is because from moment to moment, God in a sense, making love to the universe. The only reason the universe exists is because God is overflowing his goodness. And what does it feel like to overflow loving goodness? That, according to Crescus, is the feeling of real unmitigated joy. So Crescus's God feels joy at every moment. So he's got all three the God of Crescus has all three of the things that I've said are necessary for being a person. Yeah, but is that really enough? Is the God of Crescus really a person? Well, I want to say no. I want to say the God of Crescus is not a person. Certainly more passionate, maybe more relatable than the God of Maimonides, but still not a person. Why do I want to say that? Well, first of all, one reason you might want to say that the God of Crescus isn't a person is that if God only has one emotion, which never changes, right, is that enough of an emotional landscape to be considered a person? You might think he's, he's too emotionally restricted or constricted to be considered a person. If he only ever has his emotional repertoire is just one feeling, right? Now, I, I'm not sure that's going to be enough to disqualify the God of Crescus from personhood, because what God lacks in emotional range, he makes up for in terms of intensity. In fact, apparently every time you feel joy, according to Crescus, it's just a pale reflection of the real joy, the joy that God experiences. So perhaps, you know, okay, he's only got one emotion, but by golly, does he really feel it, right? Um, Another consideration is, look, human people can suffer from various uh, psychiatric or psychological conditions which severely restrict their emotional range, but I don't think it renders them any less persons. So people suffering from episodes of clinical depression, that whether they, they have a, a unipolar depression or they, or they have a bipolar condition, but when they're in an episode of depression, or likewise, uh, people suffering from an episode of mania, whether that's because they are uh, bipolar, or indeed some psychiatrists and psychologists are coming to think that there is such a thing as unipolar mania, people who, who don't necessarily go through depressive episodes, but do go through episodes of mania. In the midst of such an episode, whether it's an, a depressive episode or an episode of, of kind of unmitigated and perhaps uncanny euphoria, um, a person has a very limited emotional range. 
But actually, I don't think that makes them less of a person. If anything, there's a sense in which their vulnerability um, or the intensity of their emotional state perhaps renders their personhood more salient, not less salient. Now, there are other pathologies like patholo pathological apathy, which can sometimes be a symptom of schizophrenia, where a person doesn't seem capable of uh, having emotion, certainly expressing emotion, but perhaps even having an emotion. Now, you might think that that person, that it, it, such a person is kind of, their personhood is marred, but I don't think we would say the same about somebody uh, in a depressive or a, or a manic episode. And therefore, I don't think this is good enough reason to disqualify the God of Crescus from personhood, but I'll get to what I think the good reason is currently. Let's dismiss another possible reason. Right. If God's emotional state is always unchanging, then his emotions are unresponsive. So the question is, does that make him less than a person? And indeed, in the last uh, lecture, I heavily hinted towards that being the case, that the unresponsiveness of, of Crescus's God somehow renders him impersonal. Um, I'm having second thoughts about this consideration. Um, because there are various routes that Crescus could take out of it. Okay, and I'll try and explain them to you. One is if like Crescus, you believe that God is outside of time. So it's as if he, he's looking at the entire timeline and experiencing what we call past and what we call present and what we call future. He's experiencing them all, so to speak, simultaneously from from what the classical theists call his eternal present, which is located outside of what we call time. Now, if God is outside of time, or even if he's within time, but he can see the future, so he can see all times at once, then perhaps his unchanging emotional state is responsive to all moments of history at once. So he can see the sadness of the Holocaust. He can see the sadness of, of, you know, all these terrible things that happen in history. He sees them all at once and he has the appropriate emotional response to them. The only reason he doesn't feel any sadness is because he sees so much. He also sees Yimota Mashiach, the days of the Messiah and the eschaton. And he sees what we are are completely incapable of seeing, trapped as we are in, in, in our temporal dimension, he sees how actually all things are justified in the end. And that all things, however terrible they may seem from our perspective, and however uh, uh, hollow any attempt to justify the evils that we see may strike us, God just has a different perspective and he can see all at once. So it's not that he's not responsive to the terrible things, it's just he sees everything. And because he sees everything, he's capable of maintaining this infinite joy at all times because unlike us, he's able to see the infinite goodness of being um, and he's able to kind of factor in those terrible, terrible things which to us just seem unjustifiable, he's able to factor them in to the infinite goodness of being because of his perspective, which we can't even imagine. Um, so he has this one unchanging emotion, but don't say it's unresponsive. It factors in every single thing that happens in history um, into his God's eye view. So I'm not quite sure that, that the right criticism here is to say that his um, his his emotional state is unresponsive. Uh, Miriam wants to ask, so when the Torah says that God is angry, how does Crescus understand it? I think he'd say exactly what the Rambam says, that's right, is that uh, 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 Miriam then suggested uh, a response. The response is, when, when we say God is angry, Crescus is gonna agree with the Rambam and say what the Torah really means is that God has had, um, an impact on the world. He's caused things to occur that to us look like anger, but no, there's no anger. Uh, but unlike the Rambam, um, Crescus is able to say that some things are literal, right? When for instance, 
the Tanakh says that God rejoices in, the, in his handiwork, he really does. Uh, that's not a figure of speech because God really does have joy. Okay, um, so here I think is the crucial part, part of why the God of Crescus isn't a person. It's this, God cannot enter into interpersonal relations. Well, why not? Well, I wanna say that a true interpersonal relation requires empathy. In fact, I think it requires even more than empathy. I think it requires the ability to share an emotion with another. And God cannot share emotions because God only ever has one emotion, right? So what does it mean to share an emotion? There's a lot of literature about this, uh, both in psychology and in philosophy. So it's not what, what psychologists call emotional contagion, which is like you're at a football match maybe and you don't even know what the score is. You don't even know what football is, but you just find yourself in a, in a, in a stadium and everyone's cheering and wow, you just, it feels amazing, right? And you kind of get swept up in the emotion. But the truth is, if you don't know what football is and you don't know what they're cheering about, there's, there's, there's very little sense in which you're sharing these people's emotion because they're cheering about the football game. You, however, just get swept away. You don't even know what they're cheering about, but it's kind of fun to be around cheering. No, that's not a shared emotion. A shared emotion is perhaps what you have when you are a football fan and you're there in the stadium and you kind of share the understanding of the other people in the crowd and you're happy that your team is winning, but more than just being happy that your team is winning, you experience your happiness, but you also experience the fact that you are happy among other people who are happy about the same thing that you're happy about. And that's, that's the experience of a shared happiness. Now, empathy isn't necessarily about sharing an experience. For instance, I can empathize with your sadness without being sad myself. What it means to empathize with a person's sadness, I think, involves perceiving another person's sadness but not as your own. So if I see that my son is sad and I empathize with him, it's not just that I understand that he's sad. There's a sense in which I see his sadness, but I experience his sadness even as one of the things I, so to speak, perceive, but I perceive that it's not my own. In fact, uh, um, interesting studies show, both neurological and psychological studies show, that people on the autistic spectrum uh, well, we're all on the spectrum, but people, people with autism um, find it harder than neurotypical people um, to experience the emotion of another. And generally, what they have to do is they actually have to infer. So they see that they see my face and they, they, they actually have to go through a mental process where they say, oh, OK, I know what that face means. That face means angry. Oh, Sam must be angry. Okay, whereas uh, the neurotypical, they don't seem to go through a, 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 a conscious or even an unconscious process of inference. It's almost as if they see directly my anger. And there is, there's even some neurological theory to try and explain how this can be done without inference. And that's that um, neurotypical people, when they see a face expressing an emotion, it triggers mirror neurons. Uh, in the parts of their own brain, which would generally be active when, they, when they're angry themselves. So even though I don't get angry seeing an angry face, the parts of my brain associated with anger are somehow active. And that's what allows my perception of another person's emotional state to be somehow more direct. And there is some evidence, uh, uh, the uh, neurologist um, V.S. Ramachandran has found that people uh, diagnosed with autism tend to have suppressed mirror neuron activity. So this is a neat explanation of what's going on. There's some sense in which when you empathize with another, you don't experience their emotion, but there's a sense in which you, so to speak, see their emotion directly, uh, which uh, people uh, with autism will, would find harder to do. And instead of seeing that another person is experiencing emotion, they will infer it. 
uh, you know, if they're sufficiently socially um, adept, if they're high functioning um, um, people with autism. Now, I wanna argue that both empathy and this perhaps different notion of sharing um, an emotion with another are really important uh, for the um, generation of interpersonal relations. People who are completely incapable of, um, of sharing an emotion with another or empathizing with another, I want to say that their personhood is at least impaired. Um, and I draw from the work of a philosopher of psychology and philosopher of mind, Dan Zahavi in Copenhagen, um, who in turn draws from Edmund Husserl, um, the German Jewish philosopher. Um, and this is a really nice quote from Zahavi I wanna share with you. You need to experience, he's talking about what does it mean to have a second person experience? Uh, and, and, and there's now a lot of developmental psychology that Zahavi is very aware of about babies um, and the ways in which they experience, in particular, the gaze of their mother. Um, and what happens when, when a human learns what it means, or not even learns, when a person starts to have second personal experiences of others, what they need to experience is they, they need to experience the other's perspective on you to say you need to be aware of them as being aware of you and to see yourself through their eyes. So, so if I was to have a meeting with Evie, um, I'm aware that she's looking at me and I'm aware therefore that I am a you from Evie's perspective, right? I somehow come, I, I become aware of myself no longer as a me, but as a you. And actually coming aware of myself as a you is a really important part of my being able to become aware of Evie as a you, because it's my awareness that Evie is youing me, right? She's making me into a you that makes me kind of a little bit self-conscious and makes me relate to Evie differently to the way I'd relate to a table or a chair, because tables and chairs don't judge me and I don't think they're judging me. I don't think they're looking at me. You know, when you catch a child playing, Okay. and they're playing a game and they think they're not being watched and then all of a sudden they notice that they're being watched and you see them become all of a sudden very self-conscious they're aware that they have become a you in the gaze of another right um when that happens and only when that happens you can become aware of yourself as one of them rather and more accurately, you can become aware of yourself as one of us. One of the amazing things that people are able to do is to cooperate. Now, now various non-personal animals, um, I, I'm open to there being some animals who are persons, right? Dolphins or chimpanzees or whatever, but there are even non-personal animals who are able to coordinate their actions one with another. However, there are some types of collective intentionality that you can't really have unless you have a sense of community. So the sorts of collective intentionality that creates a government or an institution, like the institution of the presidency or the institution of a, a library, right? These kind of social institutions, they don't really make any sense. They can't be created. Um, unless you have a sense of yourself as being a member of a community and you can't join a community until you've gone through these experiences of being aware of the fact that you have been used by another and when that happens you become aware of yourself as one of them um, and more more meaningfully as one of us now remember god in judaism uh, is thought to join the Jewish community in a Brit. And in a sense, there's some sort of community that we and God share. Well, God can't be a member of that unless he goes through these sorts of experiences. Anyway, it is this process that Husserl is describing when he writes, 
that I come to fit myself into the family of man and create the possibility of the unity of this family when I comprehend others as apprehending me in the same way as I apprehend them. Hegel talks about seeing yourself in the reflection of another person's eyes, right? Um, and as he then argues, Husserl it is, it is only then that I am for the first time and in the proper sense, an I over against an other and thereby in a position to say we. Now I'm not able to get into the details of the psychology or the philosophy here more than I have, uh, other than to say, it's very plausible that these experiences that I've just described to you are parasitic upon the ability to empathize and before that even, the ability to share an emotion, okay? And Herschel is saying, you're not really an I. You're not really a person until or unless you are able to interact with others in the second person singular, right? An I-thou relationship to use Buber's terminology or uh, at the very least, or not at the very least, and also uh, to have a first person plural perspective on the world, we. And actually the bridge from I to we is you. Only once you're able to kind of see others as you and recognize them seeing you as a you, are you able to create a we, okay? Um, and what I'm suggesting, like I said, I don't have the time to fully justify this to you. So, so you can do some reading on your own on this uh, notion, but I'm suggesting that none of this is possible without empathy. And before that even, the ability to share emotions. And I think this is what in the end stops the God of Crescus from being a person. He can't share emotions with others because he's only got room for one emotion. It kind of washes out all other emotions. And we'll talk about why he can't empathize later. Um, but then the question arises, okay, but what's so bad about an impersonal God? God is better than being a person. God is above personhood, okay? Now, I'll be open if people wanna type their own answers to this question. Again, the question is, what's so bad about being an impersonal God? But some of you have already said in discussions in previous weeks, what's the point of praying to a God like this, right? Uh, he can't empathize with your prayers. He can't feel your sorrow. Well, that doesn't necessarily matter, right? First of all, praying can make you a better person. And secondly, um, maybe God has set up the laws of nature such that only if you pray will you get certain things. Uh, only if you pray, perhaps, uh, will you become more modest as a human being, more holy as a human being, and perhaps in virtue of that modesty and holiness, God's providence will take more care of you. Um, prayer might even be really efficacious, but it's not because your prayer strikes a chord with God. That's all, right? Um, oh, I can't relate to this God. He's so removed from me. He's not a person. Well, do you know what? Get with it, right? My thoughts are not your thoughts, right? My ways are not your ways. I am unfathomable. God is transcendent. But just because he's, I mean, he's transcendent and he's perfect. And to the extent that we can draw close to him, we can experience not the physical joy, of proximity with God, but the intellectual love of God. You can experience this great intellectual joy. And, and the Rambam does think that that's what the afterlife will be. Like this tremendous intellectual joy from proximity to this perfect being. It doesn't matter whether or not that being um, um, is emotionally in tune with you or has feelings of its own. What we do know is that proximity to that being is the best that we can do in this world. And, and it will give us uh, 
moral perfection, intellectual perfection, and yes, even a joy. It will give us the, this tremendous intellectual bliss. And the way to do that, the way to perfect yourself and to escape um, the, the, the perversions of the flesh, which dilute our intellect, is to follow God's law, which has been revealed to us. And it's the perfectly calibrated law for uh, coming close to God. God doesn't need to be a person, does he? So, so I'll now open the floor if anybody has any um, worries about an impersonal God before I throw some of my own in. Evie, do keep a, 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 a watch over Facebook in case there's any more, okay? But that's fine. Um, Sorry about that, hold on. Yeah. Let me double check. Yep, no, and still nothing. Okay, good, because everyone's with me and that's good. So um, <laughs> what we're gonna do uh, is I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you a little story, okay? And this story is supposed to um, render problematic the idea that God isn't a person, okay? Um, and it's a well-known thought experiment. It's called the Mary thought experiment. It was devised in the 1970s by Frank Jackson. And the thought runs as follows. You're to imagine a woman called Mary born into a completely black and white monochrome environment. And despite that um, unfortunate state of affairs, her being prison, imprisoned in a monochrome environment, uh, she is a tremendously gifted um, scientist. And she is uh, handed in her monochrome prison all of the resources she could ever want for learning and mastering all of the natural sciences, so long as those resources are likewise in black and white monochrome. Fine. Um, now let's imagine that science is much, much more um, complete than the natural sciences are today. Um, and through her studies, she comes to know everything there is to know about the color red. And what I mean by that is she knows every true proposition about the color red, and she knows that it's a true proposition. And for any false proposition about the color red, she knows it's a false proposition. So she knows the range of wavelengths that light has to be traveling at for a, 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 um, a, a a typical human observer to say, oh, that's red. She knows exactly what, uh, what goes on in the retina, what goes on in the optic nerve, what goes on in, in, in the visual cortex, what goes on uh, in the brain as a whole. She knows exactly um, the psychological reactions a human being uh, uh, um, conditioned in Western culture or any other culture uh, is likely to display uh, upon seeing red, the sorts of behavior, the sorts of statements, the sorts of associations. She just knows it all. And then she breaks out of her prison and for the first time in her entire life, she sees something that's actually red. She goes, aha, wow, so that's what red looks like. And yet, ex hypothesis, she knew every proposition there was to know about red and the experience of red and yet it seems compelling at the least to say that she did come to learn something new upon escape from her prison some want to deny that she didn't learn anything new but most people have the strong intuition that she's come to learn something new um she, she's come to know what redness redness looks like or something like that um the thought is that some knowledge is not propositional. That um, sure, she knew every true proposition about the human experience of red. So every sentence uh, of the English language that's true about redness um, and every sentence in the English language that's false about redness, she knew which were true and which were false. But some types of knowledge just don't seem to be conveyed by the uh, strictures uh, of sentential form of the grammar of, of sentences. Now, okay, I can tell you the sentence she came to know. She came to know, oh, redness looks like that. Now that's a sentence, but that seems like a cheat because what's doing the work isn't the sentence, but the kind of 
that word that, which seems to be pointing to something, um, it's doing more work than you would want it to be doing. Um, so the idea is some things can't be known until they've been experienced. So you could run the same experiment. Well, like it's not possible to know what something tastes like until you've tasted things. Um, and maybe you don't need to have tasted the actual thing because I could tell you something like, oh, it tastes a bit like apple and cinnamon. And if you've eaten apple and you've eaten cinnamon, I've given you some idea, you've got some knowledge now, but what happens if you've never tasted anything? Can I give you knowledge of what something tastes like if you've never tasted anything? And you can run the same experiment for emotions as well. So imagine Mary had never ever been happy. That's quite easy to imagine because she's been locked up in a monochrome prison and all she's had for company are books. So she's never ever been happy. But she knows everything there is to know about happiness propositionally. But then she leaves her prison and she meets people and she goes to a party and she experiences happiness. She goes, ah, that's what it feels like on the inside. So the, the idea is some things, some items of knowledge are not propositional. More than, more than that, some things can't know and some things can't be known until they've been experienced. Yes, that's right. Nissan said, could you say that this kind of experience may be contained in ki dativ? There's a notion of, of dat in, in, the, in the Hebrew Bible, which seems to be much more um, rich than merely a cognitive notion, right? It's to know something very, very intimately, to know something perhaps even experientially. Um, so it's not possible to know everything about my emotional state unless you, you've experienced at least an emotion, that's gonna be the claim. And then you might say, well, a being with a restricted emotional landscape can't be empathetic. Now, at this point, I could hear Crescus or the classical theist turn around and say, okay, God doesn't need to have empathy. You know, he's good. He never does anything bad, but he doesn't need to be empathetic in order to be good. Well, here's another problem. A being with a restricted emotional landscape cannot be omniscient. He can't know everything. He can't know what it feels like to be in pain. He can't know what it feels like um, to suffer. Now, um, that has been considered in recent times a really big problem for um, classical theism. And the philosopher Linda Zagzebski, I think she's in Arizona State, um, has, has come up with a new omni. We talk about God being omnipotent, God be om being omniscient, God being omnibenevolent. So Linda Zagzebski has added to this omni vocabulary the notion of omnisubjectivity. And what it means to be an omnisubjective being is to know what everything feels like. And it's to know exactly what it would feel like to be Samuel Liebens giving this lecture right now. And it's far from clear to me that the God of Crescus can be omniscient. It's far from clear to me that the God of Crescus can be omnisubjective because it's far from clear to, far from clear to me that the God of Crescus has the kind of emotional breadth. He's so emotionally restricted, despite the emotional depth he has, this intense joy. It's not clear to me that he has the emotional breadth that could allow for um, knowledge of these emotional states that his creatures go through. And if he doesn't know what it's like to be his creatures, and it seems like there's an important item of knowledge that he just doesn't have. Uh, and therefore he's not omniscient because he's not omnisubjective. That's at least the worry. There are other worries with an impersonal God. And that's that an impersonal God simply doesn't resonate with our own religious experience. Now, there are multiple reasons for thinking that God exists. One reason for thinking that God exists is the cosmological argument. And we said that, um, every change has to have an agent. The agent of each change needs to have potential. 
but at some point there needs to be a first changer, a first cause. And that cause needs to have no potential, needs to be completely actual. And that's why these medieval Jews and medieval Christians and medieval Muslims believed that God had to be completely and utterly unchanging and impassable. But that's only one of the ways we come to know that God exists through the cosmological argument. And you might not even think the cosmological argument is valid or sound. But another route knowing that God exists is religious experience. And I think Rabbi Sachs expressed this, this particular type of religious experience beautifully when he says, God is the personal dimension of existence, the thou beneath the it. That's obviously uh, um, an allusion to Buber. It's the ought beyond the is. It's the self that speaks to self in moments of total disclosure when opening ourselves to the universe, we find God reaching out to us. At that moment, we make the life-changing discovery that although we are utterly insignificant, we are also utterly significant, a fragment of God's presence in the world. We know that eternity preceded us and infinity will come after us. Yet we know also that this day, this moment, this place, this circumstance is full of the light of infinite radiance whose proof is the mere fact that we are here to experience it. At its height, faith is none other than transfiguring knowledge that yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. And that you is very important. It's a religious experience of God in the second person. It's a religious experience of a personal God. Um, Rabbi Soloveitchik, in the lonely man of faith said that Abraham, the knight of faith, according to our tradition, sought and discovered God in the starlit heavens of Mesopotamia. It's like the cosmological argument. Yet he felt an intense loneliness and could not find solace in the silent companionship of God, whose image was reflected in the boundless stretches of the cosmos. Only when he met God on earth, as father, brother, and friend, not only along the uncharted astral routes did he feel redeemed. Our sages said that before Abraham appeared, majestous day, the majesty of God, was reflected only by the distant heavens, and it was a mute nature which spoke of the glory of God. It was Abraham who crowned him the God of earth, i.e. the God of men. So we've got an impersonal God, perhaps not being able to be omniscient, certainly not omnisubjective. And we also have an impersonal God not doing justice to lived religious experience, religious experience of God as a person. Um, Rabbi Heschel adds to this in his um, epoch-making study of the prophets. And it's a very, very close and careful study of multiple books of prophecy. And he comes to the following sorts of conclusions. These are all quotes. In the presence of God, he, i.e. the prophet, who can sometimes be a she, of course, takes the part of the people. In the presence of the people, he takes the part of God. That's a very obvious observation. Um, it doesn't take a genius of Heschel's stature to see it, just look through the Hebrew Bible and you will see that the prophets tend to defend man to God and kind of represent God to man. Now, he carries on in a different place in the book. The prophetic speeches, speeches are not factual pronouncements. What we hear is not objective criticism or the cold proclamation of doom. The style of legal objective utterance is alien to the prophet, certainly outside of Moshe Rabbeinu and even Moshe, it's alien to. I suppose the closest you get is, is Jonah, but Jonah was very reluctant. He went to Nineveh and he said something like, this town's gonna to be destroyed in 40 days, and then he left, right? But that's not the typical kind of uh, prophetic proclamation. Um, the prophet dwells upon inner motives, not only upon his historical decisions. He discloses a divine pathos, not just a divine judgment. 
The pages of the prophetic writings are filled with echoes of divine love and disappointment, mercy and indignation. The God of Israel is never impersonal. Now, of course, we've already discussed Maimonides and Crescus have a way of reading these sorts of passages. But the question is, can they really do justice to what the Tanakh is centrally about? An analysis of prophetic utterances shows that the fundamental experience of the prophet is a fellowship with the feeling of God a sympathy with the divine pathos, a communion with the divine consciousness, which comes about through the prophet's reflection of or participation in the divine pathos. It's the feelings of God that first and foremost, the prophet is aware of. This is actually just an extension of what we saw from Rabbi Saxon, Rabbi Soloveitchik about religious experience in general. Religious experience in general is experience of God as a person. But prophecy for Rav Heschel is experience of God's inner life. The emotional experience of the prophet becomes the focal point for the prophet's understanding of God. He lives not only his personal life, but also the life of God. The prophet hears God vo God's voice and he feels his heart. He tries to impart the pathos of the message together with its logos. So the God of Heschel has logos, pathos and ethos. As an imparter, his soul overflows, speaking as he does out of the fullness of his sympathy. Great question. How does the Zohar's view of God compare to this? Uh, um, uh, Lee Price asks. I'm going to try and get to that if I have time in the last 10 minutes, because uh, it's a crucial question. Um, Rabbi Heschel was, was uh, very aware of the mystical tradition. He was steeped in it because he grew up in it. Uh, he was the descendant of, uh, of a Hasidic dynasty. And yet um, he's criticized by Rabbi Berkowitz, by Rabbi Leza Berkowitz, kind of not doing justice to the, the tradition of mysticism. But we'll see whether that's true if we have time. Um, if anything, what Rabbi Heschel is avowedly trying to do is unpack the theology of the Hebrew Bible. Okay, what's the theology of the Zohar? Can it be reconciled? Interesting question. Um, let's carry on with some more uh, Rav Heschel. Justice exists in relation to a person and is something done by a person. An act of injustice is condemned not because the law is broken, but because a person has been hurt. What is the image of a person? And he quotes from the book of Exodus, you shall not afflict any widow or orphan. If you do afflict them and they cry to me, I will surely hear their cry. If he cries to me, I will hear for I am compassionate. What is wrong with afflicting the widow or the orphan is that they are people who, with whom God's compassion is in tune. When Cain murdered his brother Abel, the words denouncing his crime did not proclaim you have broken the law. Instead, we read, and the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. So as it's presented in the Bible, divine ethos, to quote Heschel, does not operate without pathos. Any thought of an objectivity or a platonic self-subsistence of ideas, be it the idea of beauty or of justice, is alien to the prophets. It's not that God cares about some abstract thing called morality. It's that God is all personal, all subject. His ethos and pathos are one. He can't bear, so to speak, the pain of the orphan and the widow. And, and it's, it's in the same breath as his pathos is his ethos which tells us not to afflict them to the prophet knowledge of god was fellowship with him not attained by a, by syllogism analysis or induction but by living together now one problem you could throw at rav heschel before you get to lee's problem which i plan to have some time to speak about um, is well, this is just like crude anthropomorphism. And the obvious thing you can say about an anthropomorphism is um, you, can, you can subject it to a reductio ad absurdum, 
which is this old notion that if, if horses would depict God, they'd depict him like horses. And if frogs could depict God, they'd depict him like frogs. How are we any better by casting God in our image? Surely the whole idea of Maimonidean and Kreskian theology was to rescue God from the image of man, was to show that God is wholly other um, than man. And what, what I've been trying to do with uh, the help of Rav Heschel and in, inspired by Rabbi Sachs is to cast God in, in deliberately personal hues. Well, that's just anthropomorphism. But I think Rabbi Heschel has a brilliant response. And he says, well, look, oxen, lions and horses would depict God like one of them. We are wiser. Should we then depict God unlike us? Is it true that the absolute antithesis to man is the true characteristic of the divine? If man has nothing in common with God, he will never be able to know what God is, or even to know that God is the absolute antithesis to man. So first of all, if you, there is a danger, of Heschel is pointing out. If you remove God too far away from man, then there's the risk we'll never be able to know him. Okay. But it's, the, the response is cleverer, because he continues. He said, oxen would depict God in their image. A community of triangles would worship a triangular God. The fallacy of these statements is concealed in their glibness. Do oxen depict God? Are triangles capable of worship? As soon as you want to depict God, it means you are reaching out for a thou. As soon as you are capable of worship, it means you are reaching out for a thou that is omnisubjective, that is a better reflection of personhood than, than you are. The fact that you want to depict God is, is, is almost the watermark of the fact that you are a person. And that's why if a non-person were to try to depict God, there'd be something absurd about it. But as soon as a person does, as far as Rabbi Heschel, Rabbi Heschel is concerned, they, they almost have a certain amount of license to cast God in their image because there's a quantum leap between the oxens and the, the, the community of triangles and any community of religious people because religion doesn't emerge without, not, not the species homo sapien, but without personhood. And therefore, if you want to make God like us in a bodily sense, then you're making God into a homo sapien. But if all you're trying to do is make God more like us in order to make him a person, which is what we do when we engage in anthropopathism, when you make God's emotions more like ours, um, it doesn't seem like there's such a fantasy there anymore. So what is the problem? Well, what about the following things, right? Well, the, the, main, the main thing is, and I, I rushed this slide, that's why it just all appeared at once. But a perfect God must be unchanging. We had good reason for thinking that. Uh, uh, Adrian Lopez asks, are we looking for more of a symbiotic relationship than a parasitic relationship. Exactly. The Bible seems to want us to have a symbiotic relationship with God and the rabbis too in the Talmud, when they seem to say, you know, Tinius Rufus um, is asked or asks Rabbi Akiva, what's better, wheat and barley or cakes and bread? And Rabbi Akiva says, cakes and bread are better because they, were, they were, were the result of a partnership between God and man. We are supposed to have this kind of reciprocal relationship with God. And the theology of the Bible, like the theology of the Talmudic rabbis, Rabbi Heschel would say, is the theology of, of a personal God. And therefore, yes, it's, not, it, it's supposed to be a symbiotic relationship that we have. But the thing is, the Rambam and, and the Raubag and Crescus and other medieval philosophies and the Ainsof of, 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 of uh, um, of the mystical tradition. I'm not thinking about the Zohar so, so much right now, Lee, but, but, but the, uh, the, the theology of, of the Arizal, of Lurianic Kabbal, the Ainsof, there's this 
And that, that does appear in the Zohar too, the, the, the notion of a completely immutable, unchanging, transcendent, infinite, insurpassable, immutable, unchanging God. Um, the question though, isn't how to reconcile that with Heschel or, 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 or Rabbi Sachs or, or Rabbi Soloveitchik. It's a, it's, a, it's a more profound question. How do we reconcile that with the Bible? How do we reconcile it with the rabbis of the Talmud? How do we rep reconcile it with lived religious experience, which is sometimes the unio mystica. There's sometimes there's a religious experience of an impersonal God, of a completely transcendent other. But sometimes the religious experience is an I-thou experience. It's personal and interpersonal. So there are a few things we could try to do. One, you could try to say, well, look, because God is outside of time, he does experience all of my happinesses and all of my joys. And he experiences all of Lee's happiness and all of Lee's joys. And he experiences all of the happiness and joy of all people ever. But it's just not changing because he's outside of time. And he knows what all of those feelings are like. But if you had to ask him, how is he feeling? He'd tell you I'm feeling blissfully joyful because I have this other perspective. So perhaps you can give God at least empathy, if not shared emotional uh, experiences. You can at least give him empathy and have him remain unchanging. Um, so that's uh, outside of time, or even inside of time, you could give him that by his having this very complex, unchanging emotional state, because he knows the future, past and present. It's responsive to all, you know, to all times from his point of view. The thing that I think is fascinating, and we're not going to have time to talk about today, is what the resources of, of Kabbalistic and Hasidic mysticism have to bring to bear on this subject. Because I actually think that um, Jewish mysticism, like a number of other mysticisms, but not like all mysticisms, makes this very, very big distinction between how God is in and out of himself and how God is. Um, in other layers of reality. And this is different, I think, to Maimonides, who would talk about how God is in and of himself and how he appears to us. God appears like he's happy, or he appears like he's merciful, or he appears like he's angry, but he's not. That's what the Rambam would say. But the mystics in the Jewish tradition think of, of reality as being multi-layered. And how God is in one of those layers of reality, needn't be exactly how God is in another of those layers of reality. The best analogy I can give to you is Kurt Vonnegut. Uh, I come back to him a lot in my work. Kurt Vonnegut um, appears in some of his novels. And it's not just that he appears to his characters as being in the bar in Midland City. He is in the bar in Midland City in their reality, although he, in actual fact, in our reality, he never went to such a bar or such a city because they're all fictional. So it's not how, how uh, Vonnegut appears in his fictional realities, it's how he is in those fictional realities. And then there, it, there's the question of how he is in his reality. Now God, as he appears in our reality, might be a person with pathos and ethos and logos. And perhaps he doesn't even know the future because of this thing called Tsim And he's responsive to us in real time. But perhaps that doesn't contradict the insights of Maimonides and Crescus. Say it's some fundamental layer of reality where God is perfect. There, there, there either can't be emotions at all or if, they are, if there is emotion there, it needs to be of a very sublime and unchanging sort. But the, the question is, and this is the question I leave open, um, and I've just given you a few potential avenues to think about. The question is, is there a way of reconciling the deeply apersonal theology of, of the Rambam with the very deeply personal theology of Rav Heschel? And are there reasons to want to do it? Um, and I actually think there are reasons to want to do it. And I think there are, there are means by which it might be feasible 
Um, and I tried to give you a hint about how that might be done. So anyway, um, that's, that's all I have to say about what does it mean about God when we say that we are in his image. And I hope I've given you uh, a lot to think about. Um, thank you. Thank you, Dr. Lee Vance. Uh, does anyone have any questions? Uh, any other questions before we, uh, we close things? Feel free to unmute yourself. Yeah, um, I, I was just wondering, um, do you have an email? Or if questions come to us afterwards, do you have a place? Um, oh, so, do you have the time so, and the inclination to answer? Yes, I do have. Uh, I have both the time and the inclination, and I even have an email address. It is Samuel underscore Liebens at hotmail.com, which apparently, according to my younger students, means that I'm a Luddite. <laughs> it's, apparently it's a very uncool, it's very uncool. It, it does the job. I get emails. I don't see how on earth uh, it's a problem. But there you go. That's my email address. Samuel underscore oh, at, at least you're not a boomer. <laughs> you <can be> grateful <laughs> for that. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a boomer. I'm the, I'm the, I'm the son, I'm the son of boomers. Yes. All right. Go ahead. Yeah. Sure, sure. This was so thought provoking as expected. Um, my only contribution would be the Ramban. The Ramban in Kiyadativ, as he explains it in the beginning of Parshat Chaye Sarah. Uh, the, the text uh, is about um, uh, about Oshem Amar, Avraham How can I hide from Abraham uh, what I'm about to do now to the people of Sodom? Kiyadativ, which is the Gemara said, I think it's more in Baba Basra, Baba Batra. It's one of the most important psukim in the Torah. Kiyadativ, the Manashayitzavet, and Ramban explains, not like Rashi, but Yadativ is this overwhelming love always with him. And what the Ramban says, and Chevelle uh, directed me to the to the um, source in uh, the guide, where he and Ramban both agree that the masses of people, like animals, don't have hashkacha pratit. Mm -hmm. This is not something that we're taught in in, in mm -hmm. elementary school, but this is. But the Ramban adds that individuals have it. Individuals who are tzaddikim. Who, who are, you know, and the nation of Israel has it. So I, I yeah. think this may be a way of, my own contribution is the bracha of al Hatzadikim that we say three times a day. These are the groups of people that have this special divine providence. Tzadikim, Hasidim, converts, Va'aleinu. Yamuna rachamecha, may your rachamim be awakened, betain sachar tov. Sachar tov, as you know, Kvod Rav Doctor, is a code word for Ashkacha Pratid. Ani Yudkevovke, Neman Lashalim Sachar. That is the Mida of, of personal attention, as opposed to Elohim, which is you know the God of natural law. So the Ramban says this is something that we aspire to have, we as individuals. Yes. yes. I, I mean, a, this brings this, bring, this to answer your last question. This is a way of because the mass of the people, unlike, unlike what we're taught in school and you know yeshivot, don't have hashkacha pratit according to no. Rambam and Ramban, but Indeed. Ramban gives us a way. Well, well, the Ramban and the Ralbag both think there's a way that that uh, are quite different to one another. So, the the Ralbag thinks that God only has um, concern for um, really kind of general eternal truths and laws and things like that, what, what, what the Aristotelians call first intelligibles. Um, and he therefore knows the nations uh, because they are kind of klalim, they're like generalities. But Ralbag thinks that when you become a tzaddik, you so to speak become so important in, um, in, in, in the running of the world, in, in uh, jurisprudence, even in, in, in political philosophy, in, in you know, political science, that God comes to know you as, a, as, a, as, like, a, as like, almost as if, a, as if you become a first intelligible. But it seems to me that the Ramban um, 
has more of a personal theology. And therefore he thinks that the tzaddikim, it's just that God delegates for the Ramban. God delegates the government of most of humanity to the angels. Um, and it's only really the tzaddikim who, who get to kind of have a personal relationship with God. Uh, and then he takes them under his personal governance. Um, and perhaps uh, um, in virtue of the tzaddikim, uh, the entire Jewish people come under that, you know, um, uh, umbrella of, of divine providence and personal relationship. But I think that's only possible because the Ramban, unlike Maimonides and the Ralbag, has more of a personal God to begin with. Um, I think so. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, thank you, uh, Dr. Levens. Uh, this was a great final class in this series. Thank and thank you to much. everyone who joined us uh, today on Zoom, on Drisha Live, and on Facebook. We continue our full programming uh, this evening at 8 p.m. with the final session as well on caring for others, the Torah and ourselves, Jewish perspectives on the ethics of care by Sarah Zager. In addition, we always have many classes going on. So you can go on our website, www.drisha.org classes, or you can watch classes live at www.drisha.org live. Thank you again for this opportunity to learn with you, uh, Dr. Libens. And thanks again to everyone who attended. We hope to see you soon at one of our upcoming classes starting from this evening. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Bye, -bye.